Well, thank you so much, Linda. I am, I'll stand so those at the back can hear me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here this afternoon, and it's a really congratulations to you on reinvigorating and developing the international research network within the SOHE. Um, it's a very important part of the development of all of our fields of research to look comparatively and internationally. And so congratulations to you and thank you for this invitation. And thank you also to Elspeth because your introduction set a very um, uh, eloquent analysis of the Bologna process within which some of the discussion I'm going to be leading touches upon. What I'd like to do, and please let me know if I'm standing in your way, you will get copies of these slides, but I'll walk around a little bit, so uh, you needn't worry too much, particularly about showing figures. <coughs> what I'd like to do is, um, in the time I have available, address three uh, issues. I want to look at the topic of lifelong learning in the higher education context. And here I'll draw particularly on some work that grew out of OECD in the 1980s. And I am delighted to say one of the key collaborators is with us in the audience, Professor Walter. <laughs> so he's heard this before. He can contradict me if he wishes. Um, and then um, in that wider context, Ireland uh, was one of 14 studies within a comparative analysis. And Linda had suggested it might be of interest to people to learn a little bit about what's taking place in the Irish system. And this is where I'm delighted that Tara is in the audience. And uh, the, all the difficult questions you have, I will advance with your <laughs> agreement to Tara then, subsequently. Mm. But particularly looking at Ireland and, and the discussion that we touched on this morning about widening access, and in this case, particularly for adult learners, people who have deferred or coming in through non-traditional routes. And then finally, I'd like to take just an example of one institution, my own institution, where we're taking just one part of the uh, concept of culture change uh, to try and draw on some of the research findings to help to implement uh, a widening access strategy, particularly for older adults. But perhaps uh, just to, to kick off, um, so by way of preliminary comments, uh, because I'd like to just draw attention to a number of the wider global trends in higher education, because we really cannot talk about lifelong learning and higher education and widening access without putting those in some kind of global context of socioeconomic factors. And I'd particularly, out of many, like to uh, highlight six strands or themes which are important changes impacting on our systems to greater or lesser extent. And again, as been highlighted, the importance of the, the responses of different countries to those common factors depending on their history, their culture, <coughs> the structure of the formal education system and their higher education system. First point is around the continuing expansion of higher education. And this is accelerating. We have not seen any global drops in uh, 
levels of participation. So, um, when uh, the, there have been earlier discussions about moving from elite to mass systems, we now are moving towards what are called universal systems. But this is not just in the West and the developed country, of course, it's in the developing parts of the world, and particularly uh, when we look at, for example, the BRICS countries. Um, and next week, I look tomorrow, I'm going to Zambia, actually, um, uh, just talking about, you know, so where they're looking at expansion of higher education. So it's a global phenomenon. <clears throat> and within that, of course, and again, Elspeth drew attention to this, um, there are debates about the extent to which increasing participation is or is not also widening participation to underrepresented sections of the population. Um, certainly in Ireland, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on, we have very major structural inequalities in terms of socioeconomic access. But colleagues in particular, Patrick Clancy, who will be known to uh, many SRAG colleagues, um, who's undertaken recent analysis of what he calls the odds ratio, shows some improvement. So there is some evidence that increasing some levels is existing in widening. And the second global phenomenon that's shaping the context that we're looking at lifelong learning in higher education is of course the fact that universities are just one part of a much wider complex array of higher education institutions and higher education is just one part of a wider lifelong learning system. Um, so in many countries, the expansion of higher education is taking place in, in institutions that are not universities, or in new kinds of institutions, the faculty, the polytechnics, the institutes of technology. So we see differentiation uh, within higher education. A third global trend, and associated with the second one, is a continuing and it looks like accelerating emphasis on research excellence as defined by international standards. And that is leading towards greater concentration of uh, research and despite all the uh, methodological limitations and disclaimers to the contrary, the impact which global rankings have on national policies and on institutional practices. These are important contextual factors that directly and indirectly impact on the opportunities for lifelong learners in higher education. A fourth global trend is around increasing marketization, both in terms of the rise of for-profit institutions, particularly we see this in um, many of the developing countries, uh, in parts of Europe, in North America. But also, marketization within our public institutions. Uh, in my own institution, for example, our um, student accommodation, all our catering is now, our car parking is outsourced, it's a private. Uh, part of the institution. So it's not just public-private institutions, it's within public institutions, private activities, 
and also within private institutions, uh, public resources being attracted. So, for example, in the United States, a significant element of public support for disadvantaged students goes to private institutions, so for example, by private for profit like Phoenix, because of the kind of students it's attracting. So there's a the complete it's a very complex uh, picture. And fifthly, and perhaps more complex, perhaps out of our the remit for us this afternoon, but there is um, the indirect and direct impact of the economic crisis. The direct impact, of course, we see on the pressure on public expenditure in all of our countries. And we talked about that a bit this morning, about the need to generate income from student fees and the like. But there's also uh, associated with uh, the economic crisis, perhaps a more complex discussion about the role of higher education in society, and the nature of knowledge within higher education, and to some extent, crisis perhaps of uh, confidence. Higher education is being looked to, to serve many public policy objectives, some of those, even many of those, competing. Um, yesterday, a very eminent colleague from the UK, Professor Sir David Watson, who's a president, I think, of the SRHE, uh, was speaking in Dublin at a, a seminar on uh, social commitment and higher education. And he pointed to the paradox that as governments are reducing their investment in higher education, they are simultaneously seeking to ask higher education to fulfill more public policy objectives. So this kind of paradox. And then finally, in terms of the uh, global environment, of course, is the, um, are the enormously uh, complex and as yet unforeseeable uh, impact of um, new technologies, learning technologies. And we're just very much at the uh, start of this, uh, the development of what Castells calls, of course, uh, the network of society. So, I mean, that's really by way of almost parenthesis, because we can't look at the specifics without looking at, it seems to me, the, the generic um, point. And particularly from the point of view of the SRHE, because it, it is really remarkable organization and association, because its, it's explicit focus is on research on higher education. And uh, so um, in my presentation, I guess there are four dimensions that might be of conceptual interest, if you like, for, for discussion. Um, I mean, the first is that my presentation and the work I'm particularly focusing on and Andre has been involved with brings together two quite different strands of uh, research. One strand is coming from the higher education community and analysis, and the other strand is coming from the adult education community and analysis. And so one of the things we're trying to do is um, look at the exciting opportunities by bringing these two areas together. Um, the second is that uh, part of what I will be discussing draws on what I'm perhaps rather grandly calling a quasi-longitudinal exercise. And this is 
a gap, it seems to me, in our research on any of the topics in higher education is how very often we only have a snapshot, rather longitudinal data, having the opportunity to look at wider trends. We can look at statistical trends and participation rates, but perhaps looking more qualitatively. So, I mean, I wouldn't make too great a claim for this, but we have sought in our work to follow at three different time periods, 12 countries that were involved in an OECD study of adult participation in higher education in the mid-1980s. We revisited the same countries, um, often with the same authors, um, some six or seven years later. And then more recently, in 2012, we expanded the range of countries to include two BRICS countries. Um, so it's an attempt to look at some trends qualitatively. I won't make any grand claims for that. Um, we developed then trying to develop typology, so trying to generalize while not doing a disservice to the subtleties of the differences uh, between and within countries. And then um, I, the, a term that I think we're drawing from the medical area, translational research, where um, it's not seeking to be either pure or applied, but seeking to have the potential for impact on uh, policy and practice. So um, there are broadly um, three conceptual dimensions, I guess, that may be particularly of interest um, in a higher education research community perspective. So firstly, what I'd like to do is look at uh, some of the work that Andre was involved with with other colleagues, where we looked at, as I said, initially 12 and expanded to 14, higher education systems and the extent to which they were or were not addressing issues of um, lifelong learning. Now, there are, of course, many definitions, and I won't go into all the details of this, of lifelong learning. but. What we were really interested in was taking up the fact that, for most cultures, the idea of younger generations having access to higher education seems as kind of natural, shall we say, their pro progression from uh, kindergarten to junior to senior and on to higher education. So, if we look at conceptual work, for example, coming from or due, and I think this is why the idea of trying to find out what works is so complex um, in terms of widening access. Bourdieu, of course, talks about habitus as a way in which people acquire and reproduce ways of thinking, being, and doing. And so for students from, if you like, middle class, traditional age, with traditional qualifications, progressing to higher education, they can be and this is largely drawing on work of Diane Ray and other colleagues, uh, they are like fish swimming in water. It's part of a whole cultural environment which is familiar. They're going with the flow. And of course, when we look then at the kind of learners that we talked about a bit this morning, and uh, I'm particularly interested in, which is around people who did not progress directly from school, and in particular adult and mature students, in some ways, they are fish swimming against 
the water. Um, they, their decision to participate in higher education is often the result of a very long, complex process. Um, it is not a, a short-term uh, decision. Um, so the influence of family, peer group, institution, social class, and the subtle and often indirect uh, but still pervasive uh, influence which they exert on choices about higher education. Looking at lifelong learning, the concept is not new. It has been invented and reinvented for many decades. One of the earliest references in Britain is to the Ministry of Reconstruction, I think, going back to 1905, discussed the importance of lifelong learning. But more recently, of course, we see it in policy documents at international levels globally through OECD and UNESCO <clears throat> at a European level. Uh, we've already discussed that this morning, I think, very, very helpful. And in Europe specifically, uh, there is, for example, a university's charter on lifelong learning, uh, initiated in 2008, and the particular role which higher education might play in in meeting the lifelong learning, um, lifelong learning agenda. But international comparative data often excludes a focus on lifelong learning directly or indirectly. For example, a lot of the data discusses the question of the age participation rate in higher education and in doing so is focusing largely on the school leaving age. So those kind of targets of 40% uh, participation are essentially of school leavers. Many of the statistics focus on uh, full-time undergraduate level, excluding, for example, part-time distance post-experience programs. And some of them uh, may also focus disproportionately on universities as the traditional part of higher education, thereby ignoring what in many countries is actually the largest growth sector and very, very important. And I'll come to that when we discuss uh, the case of Ireland. So higher education is really just one part of a wider, very complex array of educational opportunities in a landscape of lifelong learning. And within that, at the bottom of this inverted um, pyramid, we see the more homogeneous and more selective institutions, and this goes back to our earlier discussion. They, of course, are porous to some extent. So, for example, it's some of the most elite institutions in the world that have pioneered the development of MOOCs. Um, and so they're, they're, they are not rigidly uh, bounded. There are, there are elements of porosity, um, unless you want to get obtain a full degree from them. Then we see perhaps some uh, elements coming in. 
Um, but as we move in this particular diagram along the um, horizontal scale, we're moving from relatively homogeneous in terms of socioeconomic background and younger through to much more diverse, heterogeneous and older learners. And on the vertical axis from relatively selective to relatively open. So it's a schematic representation of um, where, how, how higher education fits within a much, much bigger uh, complex pattern of lifelong learning opportunities. And for our studies over the three periods that I mentioned, um, drawing on um, initially OECD material, so initially focusing on a number of OECD member states, one of our first challenges was how do we conceptualize adult learners in higher education? Um, and what we found from the uh, case study reports, and these were authored by individuals in each of the countries, are examples of these four dimensions, and sometimes they, they overlap. So, one conception of lifelong learners may be around the life stage of the student. And we think here about the people who deferred entry. So, the student who's not entering higher education directly from schools, but maybe coming in at a later stage. Perhaps they've had a period of work, community engagement, family responsibilities. A second conceptualization of lifelong learners in higher education is around the mode of study. So perhaps thinking more about conceptualizations of uh, part-time or distance, or blended learning, as opposed to the student on the uh, full-time program, however that might be defined. Then we have conceptualization based on types of programs. The difference between, for example, the first undergraduate bachelor's degree versus post-experience programs that people might take throughout their lifetime. And then a conceptualization based on the organization of provision. So what part of the institution is delivering the program? Is it part of the regular disciplinary departments? Or is the activity through a Centre for Continuing Education or Lifelong Learning or Adult Education? And we, we see examples of all of these. The, um, and Andre is very familiar with this, um, the countries that were involved in these uh, studies over the uh, three time periods, um, as I said, 12 of them the same countries, um, they were, we were not in any sense attempting to be representative. We were just simply trying to be gain knowledge from some different kinds of systems. So for example, uh, from Europe, um, we have Ireland, Britain, Germany, <coughs> Sweden, Austria, Portugal. And within that grouping, what you have there are some systems that come from the Humboldt tradition and some systems that come from the Numa tradition with their, their different approaches. Uh, Mexico, Canada, the United States, 
and then Australia was involved, uh, colleagues from Melbourne, actually uh, Richard James and colleagues undertook the uh, study of Melbourne, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and as I said in the most recent uh, version, we felt um, it totally inappropriate to not to consider some countries that were actually emerging um, economies and developing. It wasn't possible to go to include many, but um, we did include two BRICS countries, uh, Brazil and um, South Africa. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> this is a collaborative presentation. <laughs> And again, not wanting to do a disservice, um, but one of the very interesting and challenging and I don't know whether we would say disappointing um, patterns which we have found is that over the three time periods, while each country has developed and changed and moved and levels of participation have increased, the three broad groupings that we identified in the mid-1980s remained largely unchanged. So in other words, one grouping, particularly highlighting Sweden, and the point that was made earlier was made by the, the Swedish author from Stockholm University. Things are changing, for, not necessarily for the good. Um, but uh, there is still the theoretical possibility in Sweden of dropping in and dropping out uh, of higher education. In other words, a more flexible system that responds to the needs of adult learners. And that is reflected still um, in a higher proportion of, when I say adult learners, people not directly from school moving into higher education. Uh, the UK fitted broadly um, in the middle category. Uh, I mean, there is a strong tradition of part-time although it's always under threat, um, and uh, Australia, again, with um, many examples in many universities of flexible provision and targeting of adult learners. And uh, Ireland has stayed remarkably at the relatively closed end of things when we talk about adult learners, and I'll, I'll refer to this um, in the next section when I talk a little bit more about um, Ireland and of course Andre will be discussing uh, in detail the uh, situation in Germany. And from this work we developed a typology of adult learners in higher education, lifelong, sorry, lifelong learners in higher education. And again, um, I was asked to elucidate on this. Apologies to those who have with, for whom it is already very familiar. <laughs> um, but we identified, and there is overlap between these categories, and people move in and out between the categories, but seven broad categories. So the uh, first category are people without uh, the traditional entry qualifications to higher education. So without A-levels in the UK case, without the leaving certificate in the Irish case, or Scottish hires, or the uh, abitur, um, and to enter higher education 
through either a special examination or assessment. In the literature, they tend often to be called second chance learners. The reality is, many of them, for many of them, it is a first chance. They actually aren't. It's second chance is probably a misnomer, and perhaps we can discuss that in better terminology. They didn't have a first chance. Um, then and again, we, we see many of our countries taking up the issue of uh, different equity groups. And for example, obviously, uh, lear learners with particular disabilities, uh, ethnic minority groups and the like. And in some countries, again, as we saw this morning, the question of adult learners or people coming through different routes at a later stage in life uh, are targeted as uh, policy um, for policy purposes. Deferrers um, may actually have the relevant qualifications for entry to higher education, but for personal, social or other reasons, they decide to defer entry to a later stage. And recurrent learners are people who either have or have not a qualification, but perhaps wish to change direction at a later stage, perhaps between a vocational route and an academic route. And overlapping with them are people who are returning, and this goes back to the Swedish image of drop in, drop out over the course of a lifetime, and refreshers. And of course, we see people who are refreshing, particularly in the professional spheres, uh, continuing professional development and major form of activity for our institutions. And then finally, and this is the group that I want to come back to in my uh, last, the last part of my presentation, uh, learners in later life. Uh, because one phenomenon that, of which we are aware, of course, um, in Europe specifically and globally more generally, is the impact of demographic trends and the aging of the population. And I, again, I'll come back to that um, in my example. So a few words about Ireland specifically, and then I'll move into a small case study of, of what we're doing in our own uh, institution. How do some of these factors play out in an Irish context at present? We are a small country. Um, and uh, we make a lot of noise, but we're still a small country like Scotland. Um, the population has significantly increased and due to both population, birth and immigration at the time of uh, the so-called Celtic Tiger economy. Emigration rates now are nearly back to where they were historically. Um, a very quick word about the Irish higher education system. Um, our most ancient university was established by Queen, by Queen Elizabeth. Um, in the early 19th century, um, a royal commission was established to look at primary education in Ireland. And I do stand to be corrected by some historians, but my understanding is that um, Primary, free primary education was introduced in Ireland before it was in England. And that partly was ideological because it was going to be 
instruction through English, uh, whereas the language of the majority of the population is Irish. So it's always good to try and get the school system. Um, many of you will be familiar with the work of um, Newman, who uh, was uh, sent to Ireland to establish a Catholic university in the middle of the 19th century. He didn't actually succeed in that, and in one biography I read, it was that he was more of a theorist than a practitioner, pragmatist, exactly, something like that. And um, that he preferred to get back to his books in Oxford and you know, leave the Irish to sort it out for themselves. Also, the fact was that there wasn't a sufficiently large cohort of middle-class boys to support uh, Catholic universities at that particular period of time. Um, if we come to the 1960s, and it's a big jump, but really uh, modernization came late to the Irish educational system as a whole. Um, and I'm not even addressing here uh, the role of religious orders, because they effectively filled a gap left by the state. Um, free secondary education was only introduced in Ireland in the mid-1960s. Um, up to then, there had been a, a weak vocational education system, um, and then uh, we'd call them quasi-private, quasi-independent provision through um, by religious orders. And that, uh, 1960s, um, that decision was strongly influenced by an OECD review called Investment in Education, which recommended the importance of Ireland moving to introduce a free secondary education system. And I have to say that personally, it's one of the reasons that for all its faults, I remain very committed to the work of OECD because I saw how in one country that it needed that external push and the, particularly um, the research on which it was based. Um, again, for historians, I, I looked recently at the OECD report, it's called Investment in Education, and like in the appendices, they have things like the numbers of schools in Ireland, primary schools, which are heated by turf fires or the numbers of schools which do not have electricity. This is not 1860, this is 1960. Anyhow, things have moved on since then very rapidly. So there's very rapid modernization of the, uh, the education system in general. And that, of course, impacted on higher education um, with the um, emergence of new universities. And extremely importantly, and Tara, I hope you might say something about this later on. Um, uh, the establishment of a system of what were called regional technical colleges and then subsequently became institutes of technology. And some of those grew out of very strong independent colleges. For example, John Leary was a, a college of art and design for, for many decades. Waterford, exactly. Uh, and Dublin Institute of Technology is the largest now of this. Um, and that, that strand of um, expansion in Irish, Irish higher education was seen and is still seen as being 
very strongly connected with Ireland's rapid economic development um, throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, some people talk about causal relationships, but certainly it was the connection, shall we say. Um, so where we are at the moment, briefly, is that in the south of Ireland, we have seven universities, of which four are based in Dublin, um, and then two universities in the north of Ireland, um, Queen's and the University of Ulster, and then a range of institutes of uh, technology around uh, the spread around the country. So, over um, the period of our work on the Lifelong Learning Project, um, Ireland was included in, as a case study in the mid-1980s, and then in 2000, and then 2012. Um, over that period of time, there were changes, there was continuing expansion. Um, and the system though changed in uh, three particular respects. Um, the first was that despite a decline in the portion of young people in the population, the number of young people coming to higher education continued to increase over that period. So there was a genuine uh, increase in access level. Um, so over the period, uh, there was about a 25% increase in numbers. A second um, change educationally, and I'd be interested if this is reflected in other countries, was a significant change in the relative balance between undergraduate and postgraduate over the period, with major growth in postgraduate um, uh, activity. And thirdly, a significant investment in um, research, research um, through Science Foundation Ireland and the Higher Education Authority particularly in the STEM subjects. Um, so by 2011, the Irish higher education system, uh, despite the fact that we all criticise global rankings, uh, we all use them when it suits us, particularly ministers of education. And these are figures that uh, he highlighted. Um, and of course, putting us ahead of the United Kingdom and the US, I don't know about Australia, in terms of per capita on these metrics of research activity. And there, there certainly was, whatever about the validity of rankings and otherwise, a step change in uh, research activity and research output from Irish universities. Um, and that I just yes. eight, eight institutions previously, are any of those the uh, institutes of technology? Yes, they are. One is, it's um, uh, Dublin Institute of Technology. Um, and a colleague, in fact, from Dublin Institute of Technology called Ellen Hazelhorn, um, she has published a book recently, uh, 2011, not that recently, uh, on, on rankings. And um, she, uh, so it's not explicitly about Ireland, but um, her work has estimated that if we look at Trinity College Dublin, which is our, as you saw, our oldest institution and is our most highly ranked institution in Ireland, um, it's estimated that the investment per student enrollment is less than six, that of universities um, with comparable output in the United States. Um, and 
you know, it's across a whole range of disciplines. I mean, again, quoting the Minister of Education, he described Ireland's performance in, as progressing in leaps and bounds. In fact, he says it was meteoric, <laughs> um, and that uh, Ireland ranked within the top 20 nations in the world across all research fields. And Irish research institutions feature within the top 1% in the world in 18 key fields. So, I mean, there are great strengths uh, in the system. But what about our lifelong learners and our adult learners? Where are they in the system? Um, this is another OECD review now, 10 years ago, um, which drew attention. This was a review of higher education in Ireland, and it drew attention to the fact that it, 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 made, it was very complimentary about expansion and the like, but it drew attention to the fact that Irish students are particularly young coming to higher education. Now, if we go back to the school system, uh, the Irish national exam is called the Leaving Certificate, and it is a national exam. It is very similar to the Scottish hires system. This is age 18. the children versus the adults. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. They can't go to the bar. attempt really to develop a national strategy for higher education in Ireland. Uh, a, a committee appointed by the, gov the uh, government, by the Minister of Education, and a committee chaired by an economist. Um, but it again reinforces the fact that um, you know, while there are flexibilities in the system, that there are challenges, and particularly in relation to the, what they call the relatively poor performance of the system in relation to widening access for lifelong learners, particularly adult learners. Now, there are many initiatives, and again, as we heard from Scotland, um, and this is this is Tara's institution here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be here. Um, no, it's too good, you know. 
Yes, yeah. it does. Exactly. Uh, so it's an ambitious uh, plan. Um, and within that plan and the subsequent rollout, one of the steers is to steer institutions to collaboration. Um, and uh, the idea is that there's institutional differentiation, different missions, but that by collaborating, the whole spectrum of uh, social and economic requirements might be addressed. This is just one example, and it's, it's quite frankly quite dear to my heart because I was involved in uh, setting it up originally. Uh, it's called the Dublin Region Higher Education Alliance. Uh, it comprises the four universities in the Dublin area, so that's my own institution, Dublin City University, Trinity College, uh, University College Dublin, and one just slightly outside, which is the National University of Ireland, Maynooth. And um, in the middle, DIT is actually one of our, that's Dublin Institute of Technology, it's actually one of Ireland's largest institutions uh, of higher education with a very extensive portfolio of professionally orientated programs and then uh, three other institutes of technology. And that initiative was supported by strategic funding. So the idea of the Dublin Region Higher Education Alliance was to move away from fragmented single projects on different areas of activity and much more into strategic, collaborative, institutionally strategic approaches to different topics, including graduate education, teaching and learning, but also wider courses. And we've collaborated on a range of projects. I won't go into that just at the moment. But I'd like to finish, because I see I'm now really running out of time, um, by just thinking about what the barriers are and one small initiative where we're trying to address some of the barriers at an institutional level. Because what we see when we look back at some of the work we did, as I say, going back to the mid-1980s, is a repetition of analysis. Coming back to very often very similar points about barriers and at the heart of these from an institutional perspective are issues around culture change. That our, many of our institutions are geared towards the fish swimming in the water, with swimming with the, with the tide. Um, in other words, the younger, full-time, middle-class undergraduate. I'm stereotyping, but to quite an extent, and that a lot of the uh, more flexible kind of activity is taking place at the margins. So in terms of culture change, um, there's a lot of literature from leadership and organisational change about, about this. And just one example, only one small example, is just from my own institution. Um, the president of my university is a physicist by background, but has been involved in medical research. And he, on his behalf, I'm chairing an interdisciplinary group, which is looking at the concept of what would an age-friendly university look like. And part of the rationale for looking at this is a simple demographic pattern. Um, Ireland, the blue line is the EU, and this is the percentage of the population projected to be aged over 60 
for example, by 2050. So a third across Europe. And Germany, I think, is one of the highest. Uh, this, this issue, this challenge, actually hit almost, I think, Germany perhaps more earlier than other countries. Uh, Ireland, well, we're still producing babies, you know, so um, are, we're a bit younger, uh, proportionately, um, but still an ageing uh, population. And I think what's interesting, this is drawing from a social demographer from Harvard, David Bloom, is he, as he points out, it isn't, this isn't a phenomenon just of the developed world. It's actually a global um, pattern. So that the bottom line, which is the, the red line, is actually the international trend. So other, other parts of the world, China, for example, um, we, we see. And one question about this then is, what role might higher education have? And particularly when we think about learning and later life, what role might we play? So um, what we've done in, and we're just at the early stages of this in DC, we'll have a few little flyers there if anyone's interested in. Um, we've drawn together an interdisciplinary working group under the auspices of the president of the university. And that's why I talk about culture change, because it really has to have the imprimatur from the top. Um, and we're looking at three different dimensions. Uh, the first one, of course, is research. Um, universities higher education, we cannot solve challenges and issues of aging. But we can bring our research expertise to address, for example, issues of pensions, or our colleagues working in sensors to look at uh, issues of mobility or of um, visual impairment, the impact, and of course health, um, and the strong relationship between health and healthy and active aging and lifelong learning and learning over the life course um, is well documented. How might we open our institutions to different kinds of learners and their changing needs over the life course? And underlying this also, the, what's called in the EU parlance, the social dimension and civic engagement. So, in terms of engagement in my own university, for example, there's a very strong um, Department of Health and Human Performance. And they work closely with um, School of Medicine and Nursing and one of the local hospitals to provide a program called HeartSmart for people who've had a cardiac incident. So this is bringing people into the university and working with them in very different ways. And what we've done is to develop 10 principles about what an age-friendly university might look like. And the first of these, of course, is the most challenging because it's actually the idea of how do we open all of our resources to older adults, but adults in general, um, including our educational and research programs, recognizing that people come from very different backgrounds and very different levels of expertise, so some will be people with doctorates, and many of them will be the kind of people we were talking about earlier, the so-called second chance who never had a, a first chance. Uh, this is uh, the Prime Minister of Ireland, the Taoiseach, on your left, uh, with one of the uh, learners from our intergenerational learning programme, uh, which brings together younger students and uh, 
reg regular undergraduate students uh, working with older adults. And I'd just like to finish, uh, Linda, with two quotations, or it's more like two troublesome questions. Please don't ask me to answer them. Um, this is a quotation from um, a colleague uh, I work closely with, Mark Morgan, who undertook a comparative study in, published in 2001 between the North and the South of Ireland. And he asked the question, what, why should the education of the young and full-time be guaranteed whereas the education of disadvantaged adults part-timer learners, so subject to discretionary prevailing economic factors. And their answer is, the only reason is that it has always been so. It's always been like that. A second troublesome question, and my final point, is from a study conducted by people colleagues might know, Chris Duke, uh, Etienne Bourgeois, from 1999, and they have published a report, a book called The Adult Learning University, based on analysis of Britain and um, Belgium and France, I think. Um, and this talks about, it's going back to the point about culture change. But when we talk to our colleagues in our institutions of higher education, they invariably say to us that working with adult learners is the most rewarding part of their experience. They invariably say that. Yet, um, why then um, do we almost think of adult learners, when we think of them institutionally, as in this point, subversive in the sense that they're uh, not mainstream? And their point is that the um, complexity of their social and economic and life roles um, actually challenges us in our higher education institutions. Um, it removes us from, they remove us from the classic, if we call it, ivory tower conception of the university into a conception of higher education which is much more closely engaged with social and cultural life of the society in which it is located and that that, they argue, is challenging for us in higher education. Thank you.